If you contact any of the artists featured in the podcast, sign up to their workshops or buy their products, don't forget to mention Creativity Found. And that experience really stayed with me. It was actually the worst of humanity in 9-11, but also the best, to see how New York rose and really triumphed over adversity, really. I think those experiences led to a decade later, not even a decade later, actually, 18 years later, subconsciously to be setting up Cultivating Wonder. All the skills that we are teaching children can be transferred to adults really well, and it helps with their parents' own mindfulness. Hi, I'm Claire, founder of Open Stage Arts Drama and Singing Classes for Adults. For this podcast, I chat with people who have found or refound their creativity as adults. We'll explore their childhood experiences of the arts, discuss how they came to the artistic practices they now love, and consider the barriers they may have experienced between the two. We'll also explore what it is that people value and gain from their newfound artistic pursuits and how their creative lives enrich their practical, necessary, everyday lives. For this episode, I'm speaking with Jonathan Self, who has travelled widely and seen what he describes as the best and worst of humanity. We'll find out how being in New York on 9-11 helped him find purpose and encouraged his interest in photography. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. You are a photographer and in 2020 you started Cultivating Wonder. Can you briefly explain what Cultivating Wonder is? Yes, Cultivating Wonder is the world's first online photography course for children based around mindfulness, aged 5 to 9 and 10 to 16 year olds. Amazing. What was your childhood like and did it involve the arts? It did indeed massively. I grew up in a Christian home on the edge of Sheffield and my childhood was a bit famous five-esque in that we used to go for long walks in the Peak District, places like Chatsworth House, Bakewell, Hathersage and Castleton. We had uh, dogs and I went horse riding and it was very simple. I grew up in quite a wealthy home but it wasn't spoiled materially. It was a spoiled with lots of time and love and kindness and lots of books and sitting around the fire and yeah lots of adventures. And was it arty? Very, very arty. Kind of, I felt like I got a love for poetry, for reading, for art, for music through my parents and especially my mother and became a massive reader from probably as soon as I could start reading, actually, reading a book a week, which is a habit that's kept me up to now. Brilliant. You did study for a BA in fine art in London. What did you do after that? Well, that's quite a long story. So uh, my, my grandma left me some money. And what I should have done in the mid-90s, I should have put it onto a house deposit in a place like Fulham Hall in West London when it wasn't actually that expensive. But instead, I went to New York and had a crazy time for 18 months, lived in a place called Greenwich Village and parted like a madman. It was probably the last time in New York when it felt quite innocent. And it was a really wonderful time. We went out every night, went to too many gigs and just, I felt actually growing up in Sheffield, I thought, oh my gosh, my childhood was quite boring. I actually look back on my childhood now with a lot of fondness, but in my early 20s, I look back on it with disdain and contempt and thinking, okay, I'm now finally living. My parents are really quite 
boring and I, I'm living the life I should have been living. And that was that went on for about 18 months. I don't think we ever went out before about 10 o'clock at night. And I don't think I ever saw the morning. You know, it was crazy. You had this inheritance. You, you'd yeah. had no need to work at this point. No. Did you have any thoughts or plans for going forward at this time? So I was really obviously interested in art and I was a good photographer, but I wasn't doing anything with it at that point. But I really love books and there was a thing in the back of my head always, oh, I'd want to work in publishing. There was always that thought of actually I'd love to become an editor. And then just the end of my time in New York, a couple of tragedies happened. I lost two good friends, one to drugs, one to suicide. It became quite a a dark time. It was just, it was two years, it was a few years after um, Kurt Cobain had died and it was during that whole kind of West Coast Seattle movement was moving and moved to the East Coast of New York. And we were all, we were all quite in a dark place. I ended up going to uh, India to go on a Buddhist retreat, thinking that was the answer. Anyway, it led to a long story. I ended up uh, moving back to London in 1998. But before that, I did a master's degree at Oxford Brooks in book publishing because like a lot of people probably know in publishing, it's very hard to um, get a job without experience in editorial publishing, and it's very hard to get experience without a job. And so the, the MA at Oxford Brooks is actually quite good, and it, it leapfrogs that. So I managed to get a job at Random House um, in London, um, and then worked Penguin and other companies. But it was a really, that was a three-year process from New York to India to Oxford to London. Um, and I got my first job, I'm embarrassed to say, at 26. Wow. <laughs> so you establishing yourself now in publishing, which is brilliant. How did photography come back into your life in, in the way that it did? So I've always been interested in photography ever since I was a child with uh, taking photographs with my dad. And I had a little sister who was 17 years younger than me, sorry, 16 years younger than me. And she uh, did ballet when she was a young child. And I managed to get, I took photographs of her. And these were beautiful black and whites. And I realized then, oh, I've got a talent for this. And that led to a few things, doing some freelance work, uh, still working in publishing at this point. And then eventually I got more and more work, did a couple of weddings. And it, I came to the conclusion, actually, I need to do this full time. Oh, brilliant. Why did you choose photography over the editing? I went back to New York every year to see friends. Uh, between 96 and 2008, I went every single year back to the city to visit friends and stay and go to galleries and so on. And I was in New York in, I, I booked a flight to New York in uh, August 2001, and my flight back was due on the 14th of September 2001. And as we all know, 9-11 happened. Now, I was uptown on East 86th Street, so a long, long way away from the Twin Towers, but a friend of mine was the director of communications at a Christian charity called the Mission to Seafarers. And she called me and just said, you should get down here through... Um, a friend, I managed to get in to the outer riveter of the site and took photographs of the firemen, started interviewing them. All the churches in the area had closed all their doors to the public and had put camp beds in. 
and all the firemen were staying in these churches because it was really interesting because most firemen, they lived in poor areas in New York, like Flushing Meadows and Queens and so on, but they refused to leave Manhattan until they found everyone from their station dead or alive. So I photographed them and interviewed them for this charity and I really got the buzz for kind of photojournalism. And that experience really stayed with me. It was actually the worst of humanity in 9-11, but also the best to see how New York rose and really triumphed over adversity, really. The way that the, all the local bakeries, the local cafes gave free food, how people rallied around. I think crime fell to nearly uh, 0% in New York during that time. And it kind of restored my faith, really, in humanity. You went back to India again, didn't you? Yeah, I went back to India again, very soon after, actually, and spent some time in a Muslim area of Delhi and interviewed Muslims about what their experiences were of 9-11 and how they felt about it. As everyone knows, most Muslims are very law-abiding, loving people. And I felt it was disingenuous, actually, that the whole of Islam had been tarnished with this brush, really, of extreme Islam when it wasn't true. And then I went back to India, photographed an orphanage in Delhi, and just then travelled a little bit around India, Sub-Saharan Africa and Peru, uh, photographing HIV orphanages and HIV, HIV hospices for um, different charities. That must have been quite emotional and touching and enlightening, perhaps. It really was. And I think my experiences in New York really stayed with me. I just going back to that, there's a little church uh, right behind the Twin Towers that had been modelled on St Martin's in the Field in Trafalgar Square in London. A really small little chapel, St Paul's Chapel, right behind the, the, these huge towers. And um, weirdly, or, you know, depending on whether you believe in God or whether you believe in have a spirituality, it didn't suffer any damage at all from the fallout, and yet it was the closest building. And the Citibank and HSBC near it had to get pulled down. But this church took the whole brunt of the explosion, and it didn't suffer any broken windows. And it was an extraordinary experience. And that really stayed with me about safety and about our need to be safe, to be made safe, our emotional safety, our need to be safe, to be loved. And I think the emotional and love that I've experienced, the safety I felt in that city, ironically, during the time of 9-11, really, I think, began my restoration journey. And when I was in India, seeing these young orphans, and when I was in, especially in South Africa and Swaziland, meeting four, five, six-year-olds whose parents had died and they weren't allowed to stay in the villages because of the stigma of HIV. Um, and these charities would go visit them and give them soap and bread. It felt really almost as if my life had come full circle and actually I was back to visit, revisiting my own childhood. And I think those experiences led to a decade later not even a decade later, actually, 18 years later, to subconsciously to be setting up Cultivating Wonder, which you can talk about later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you come back from these travels and you're still working as an editor and you've got the drawer of photography surrounding you, how did you balance that and at what point did you say, right, I need to do one or the other and I need to concentrate on photography? Well, that journey was actually quite convoluted and it took another decade. I worked for charity in London and then I worked for charity in Oxford um, called the Church Mission Society. And I did a lot of photography for them. 
and a lot of editing. So I moved from book publishing to editing newsletters and journals and, and magazines and that kind of thing. I was doing freelance photography at the same time, so there was these two train tracks running parallel. My freelance photography, which was really probably my biggest love of my life, absolutely adore photography, it's a big passion of mine, and my editorial work, which was paying the bills. And um, I think my fear of going full-time was that I was afraid that I would lose my love affair for it. I'd seen friends who were full-time artists, full-time photographers and other creatives go into it full-time and quickly realise actually they had to start chasing money. And I had the luxury of having a salary to be able to do pick and choose my photography work as and when I wanted it. And so my big fear for a long time, it took about 12 years to, to really kind of take that leap of faith, was I will lose my love affair for it really. Doing a lot of family photography, a lot of child photography, a lot of weddings and lots of branding photography. I absolutely loved it. I came into it fresh because I hadn't been doing it all week. But there was something in me, subconsciously, almost a voice that I was choosing to ignore for quite a long time, which said, you are born to be doing this. And I chose to ignore that voice for over a decade. A lot of people do that. I mean, there's a lot of themes that come up when I speak to my guests, and that's one of them. And the other one also is that balance between doing something that you love and the business side of doing it as a business and whether that can take away the passion of it. Presumably, when you have gone at full time and you have made it, what makes you your money you have managed to keep that balance yeah and i think for me it's about joy um and it's about nurturing those private projects so i'm doing a couple of projects in the next year one with um, uh, 40 dog owners and their dogs um, which is amazing another one is based on brokenness and beauty on the premise that everyone in the world is broken and everyone is beautiful. And it's similar to Humans of New York doing a similar exhibition, interviewing 20 men and 20 women about their uh, life and how they've come to full circle and what, how they found peace and so on. And so these private projects are quite important. I obviously do commercial work. I've got work with Marks and Spencer, lots of other small companies in Oxford and elsewhere. And I do other work as well. And yeah, it's been a real interesting journey for me that kind of tension, I guess, between making money, the commercial, and the artistic. Yeah, definitely. The, the private projects, I think that's a really good way to go about it. I love sharing my guests' stories with you, but podcasting isn't cheap. There are hosting fees and software costs, tech to buy, and time to invest in planning and editing to make sure the guests sound great and listeners hear the best content. If you would like to financially support Creativity Found, please visit ko-fi.com slash creativityfoundpodcast. Let's move on then to Cultivating Wonder, which came about in 2020. Can you tell me a little more about how it happened and how the course runs and just generally all about the ethos behind Cultivating Wonder. Yeah, so like most creatives, photographers, videographers and other people, at the beginning of lockdown, 
I was suddenly sensing this kind of tension with my work and quite a few people dropping off and clients dropping off and so on. And I went down to Devon to visit a good friend of mine who was a single mum with two girls. And we went for a walk in the woods. And the elder daughter, Esther, who's 12 years old, was asking me some really interesting questions about joy, about wonder, and about magic of nature. And that conversation stayed with me as I drove back from Devon to Oxford. Those questions really reverberated in my head. They They were staying in my head. And over the next few weeks, that conversation got louder and louder in my head to the point where I think, actually, I'm going to do a course in this. And I googled courses on wonder and photography, and there didn't seem to be any. At this point, there wasn't wasn't a huge mindfulness aspect to it. There was a sense of mindfulness to it, but it wasn't deliberately based around mindfulness. We re-pivoted the course between the first and the second course, um, having learned about the mental health pandemic that was really affecting children. But the first course was just me asking a few friends, inviting some uh, people I knew, doing some advertising, and obviously you were on it, Claire, as well, with your son. I think it was quite a, quite a basic course. It was on Zoom. It was a PowerPoint. It's uh, evolved massively now. And between the first and the second course, we did a questionnaire for the children, and I learned a lot about mental health, about how children were affected by that. And we re-pivoted the course to be much more well, exclusively really about mindfulness, to the point where a third of the exercises now are based not on photography, but on mindfulness activities, like looking at yourself in a mirror for a minute and writing down three things that you like about your face, an exercise that teenagers, especially teenage teenage girls, find particularly hard to answer. So a third of the activities are on wonder based around photography, a third are activities that are you don't take a photograph, but they can lead to better photography. And a third are nothing to do with photography. Um, and it's now hosted with real live films, uh, a pop-up Facebook group. Um, so it's been pivoted massively. It's got a life of its own, really, Claire. And it's got an organic... And it's amazing. We've had nearly a 1,000 children on it. It's been a big success, really. Brilliant. Yeah, it came about just at the right time, I think, Jonathan and as you mentioned I did it well Charlie did it and obviously I was aware of what he was doing so we were at home he was obviously not going to school by this point so we had activities to go and do we went out a lot to follow the prompts that you had given us and that was really lovely thing to do. Have you found that the parents of the children on the courses benefit from it in the same ways as the children do? Yeah, that's been, for me, one of the unintended highlights. We found that quite a few parents are reliving their own childhood, often their lost childhoods through the eyes of their own children. And we found that it's a brilliant activity for parents to do with their kids. Kids love going on nature hunts. We do scavenger hunts where they have to make a nature crown, picking up things they find, like twigs and branches and flowers. And it's a great thing parents can do. We have found, actually, that all the skills that we are teaching children can be transferred to adults really well. And it helps with their parents' own mindfulness. You know, what, what did Roald Dahl say? Roald Dahl said one of the greatest forms of wisdom is for us to get regain our childlike sense of wonder. It's not becoming childish, but childlike. But children can only be fully present. They're not thinking about tomorrow. They're not thinking about yesterday and the moment. And then suddenly anxiety kicks in in primary school or elsewhere. 
And we found that re get, getting children back, especially teenagers or parents, back to that sense of being fully present, that sense of wonder, is absolutely amazing. And I think that's one of the benefits of the course of parents, is to get back to that childlike sense of, sense of wonder. Yeah, brilliant. I can see that would be most enjoyable and a mindful situation for parents. And what about your own photography? Uh, you did mention, actually, your private projects. Do you have any other plans for that going forward? Yeah, so I'm still doing a lot of photo shoots with small companies in Oxford in London and elsewhere. I'm still working with families. I do a lot of family photography still. That's one of my specialities, family photography. Um, I've still got a couple of private projects. Photography will always be my, my main income, but also my uh, first love. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you, Jonathan. How can people contact you? So I've got two websites, uh, jonathanself.co.uk, if you want to book a family shoot or do a branding shoot. Also, you can contact me on cultivatingwonder.co. That's cultivatingwonder.co and jonathanself.co.uk. And if you're listening to this and you've got children between 5 and 16, we've also got a Facebook group called Cultivating Wonder 2020, which we have daily challenges and really good comps. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been lovely talking to you. Creativity Found is an Open Stage Arts production. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe, rate and review. If you would like to contribute to future episodes, visit ko-fi.com slash creativityfoundpodcast. If you contact any of the artists featured, sign up to their workshops or buy their products, don't forget to mention Creativity Found Podcast. On Instagram or Facebook, follow at Creativity Found Podcast, where you'll find photos of our contributors' artwork and be kept abreast of everything we're up to. When I created the Creativity Found website and the collective membership, I had no previous knowledge regarding the technical aspects of making an idea into a reality, a bit like when I started this podcast. I came across Kajabi, which allowed me to build the website so that visitors can easily find the creative classes, kits or supplies they are looking for through pages that look inviting and that showcase my members' talents. Kajabi also handles the membership, my mailing list and newsletters, the online community, taking payments, and it's where I host the Creativity Found Collective online meetups. If you're interested to learn more about how Kajabi can help you run and streamline your small business, you can find an affiliate link in the show notes and receive a 14-day free trial.